we're doing it again. Doing it again. Uh, no corrections, except for pa- <coughs> probably, hopefully, if there is a, a merciful God, uh, there will have been an addendum between here and there where Nathan tries to explain um, the history of Africa in the last, you know, in a hundred year <laughs> span between uh, world, you know, the colonialism and World War II because I hate myself. Um, if that didn't come out, uh, sorry. Well, really, colonialism in 1965. Okay. Yeah, so oh, yeah, that's no big deal. Just just a little bit of extra work. Nothing happened in Africa during that time, yeah, I'm sure. No, no. I'm sure there's nothing to analyze there. <laughs> um, but uh, that being said, we're back at it. No other corrections to be added. Uh, we're going to be starting on page 166, uh, about halfway down the page, in spite of his frequently. Um, but before that, it's not the Wall Street Journal article of the week. Oh, no. And it's not even really a bad right-wing take no. of the week. But it is just kind of an uh, uh, existentially sad thing um, that I don't know how to feel about. Um, Chernobyl vodka is a thing. What? Uh, the first consumer product made in the exclusion zone. So it's called Atomic, A-T-O-M-I-K. Oh, no. uh, it's the only bottle in existence. There's only a first bottle made. Uh, it is artisan vodka made with grain and water from the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Oh, no. Uh, they've been growing crops in a farm on in the zone, and our idea was to use that rye grain to make a spirit, they said. So okay. uh, if... No. You want to, no. I don't know. No. Um, get So if you want to know where this is going, Dr. Gennady Lapdev, a scientist based at the Ukrainian Hydro Meteorological Institute in Kiev, is also, found, is also a founding member of the newly created Chernobyl Spirit Company. Uh, so we've got Ukrainians. We've got uh, we've got some harebrained schemes to to sell to profit off to profit off of Chernobyl. Uh, in light of, I'm sure the fun, the fun, totally accurate and not uh, fucking propaganda bullshit HBO documentary. Um, yeah. We live in the worst timeline. Oh, just yeah. it's just just so everyone knows um, that that fun disaster. Yeah. Um, and in the same time uh, as that's happening, it's coming out. Uh, there's been like multiple articles in the last couple weeks on how uh, on the effects of depleted uranium in Fallujah. Oh, which yeah, has been nice. super, super fun because it comes out that uh, our use of the depleted uranium munitions in Fallujah has had a worse effect than uh, the atomic bomb in Hiroshima mm-hmm. in terms of birth defects and long term generational mm-hmm. uh, uh, Well, impact. and if I remember correctly, too, didn't we also use white phosphorus in Fallujah, too? So, like, all of it, just Fallujah just fucking. I can't, I thought, was that not? a declared war crime at that point. I thought depleted uranium was like a fun, new, exciting one. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think that's white true. phosphorus was already a war crime at that point, which is why it's available in the new Call of Duty game as a, yeah. a drop-in. Right, right, right. I do. That was, it's It's very weird because I the only, the, the only, my first introduction to that concept was the anti-flag song depleted uranium is a war crime, where they basically just yell that over and over again in like 2004? So like at the time, like 2004, Nathan had that line down, and I guess just forgot about it for 20 years, <laughs> and now, uh, now here we are, and yeah, the, like when people call George W. Bush a war criminal, like oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, not fucking kidding. That's yeah. not for effect, gang. Like yeah. the 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 level of fucked up we've done 
Uh, and and that will continue to kind of keep coming out oh, more yeah. and more and, as and we Fallujah see. Got, uh, Fallujah got the the brunt of it, but you also you know I mean have obviously you know Iraq and Afghanistan in general. Uh, you have Abu Ghraib. You have uh, the the rise and in integration of Blackwater into the oh, U.S. Jesus fighting. Christ. Yeah, yeah, the, the and, paramilitary yeah. integration. Yeah, I mean just all kinds of shit. Yeah, no, it's it's a fucking nightmare, and mm-hmm. and for for anyone that doesn't. No, I mean again, you can Google it pretty easily, but but again, depleted uranium is this very heavy. It, it's an offshoot. It's a it's a like a, a up, lower quality. It's not fissionable like you would mm-hmm. use in a nuke. Yeah. Um. But but same concept here. Same same amount. It's less radioactive. It's not quite as unstable. But you can make fun things like bullets out of it. Um. Which is which is really neat. And that's what you ended up dropping. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you would make bullets out of it. You'd make round munition rounds for like tanks and stuff like that, like armor rounds out of it. Cause it's a super heavy alloy. Uh, it was super fun. Um, and it, it is causing, again, when you think of the, the birth defects and stuff like that, that came out of, think of like agent orange mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and Hiroshima, those after those horrifying people being born, children being born without arms and legs, people uh, just, just some of the images. And again, it is, it is absolute like trigger warning, trauma warning, whatever you need Mm -hmm. going into it. But if you start going down Twitter, I mean, stillbirths are at a rate of uh, just an outrageous, outrageously high rate. Um, And the fun part is, is if you want to know the best uh, way uh, to look at it is uh, one of the one of the better websites that has it is uh, the U.S. government Veteran Affairs website has oh, all sorts of fun, uh, great facts about how how our good American veterans may have been affected by the use oh, of these Jesus munitions. Jesus Christ, um, guys, it's it's a bad thing. It's it's not good. We got to think. We got to think of it. Um, yeah, if that's that's. Compensation benefits for health problems. Veterans may file a claim for disability compensation for health problems they believe are related to exposure to depleted uranium during service. I'm real curious if children being born without arms and legs in Fallujah can file a claim with the fucking VA at this point. Kinda seems like they should. Or like maybe The Hague? Maybe can we file a claim in The Hague? That would be nice. Oh no, the year before this happened, the U.S. explicitly wrote a law that if any American is tried at The Hague, that the U.S. invades and, and pulls them out of there. Good! Let's do that! Let U.S. invade The Hague. Let's do it. They can't stop all of us. Invade The Hague. Hashtag. I'm making it happen. 2020, we're invading the Hague. God damn it! This is a just this is a nightmare. It is it is absolutely a nightmare. Yeah. Um. And and that. So again, if there's anything, pound that drum again because again, the fact that all of these same people that there was no, it's the same thing you see with like Iran Contra. There's never there's no any consequence. Nope. There is no consequence. For this level of just depraved indifference to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the only thing we can do is fucking harass Henry Kissinger in every place he ever goes until mm-hmm. he shuffles off this fucking mortal coil. And Donald Rumsfeld. If we line Donald Don- Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, if all of those guys, if they're not allowed to eat a meal in peace and, and have to, you know, get pilloried in public for the rest of their fucking natural mm-hmm. lives and their kids get fucking ridiculed and all of that shit. If we if we don't fucking scream at Meghan McCain for her dad being a moronic fucking war hawk, I, I don't know. I, again, there is no punishment for these people. Yeah. So I don't know what else we're supposed to do. Um, 
other than allegedly, I don't know, you know, I'm just saying, we just gave you a good list, guys. I mean, come on, get on it. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Hey, Jeff from the FBI listening to this, how you doing? <laughs> Let's read Fanon! Let's read Fanon. In spite of his frequently honest conduct and his sincere declarations, the leader is seen objectively as the fierce defender of these interests, today combined of the national bourgeoisie and the ex-colonial companies. His honesty, which is, soul, which is his soul's true bent, crumbles away little by little. His contact with the masses is so unreal that he comes to believe that his authority is hated and that oh no 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 okay there we go and that service the services that he has rendered, rendered his, country his country are being called into question the leader judges the ingratitude of the masses harshly and every day that passes ranges himself a little more resolutely on the side of the exploiters he therefore knowingly becomes the aider and abetter of the young bourgeoisie which is plunging into the mire of corruption and pleasure we are not going to comment on any of this because hopefully Nathan will have an addendum that answers that's, why this feels problematic. That's right. Uh, the economic channels of the young states sink back inevitably into the neocolonialist lines. The national economy, formerly protected, is today literally controlled. The budget is balanced through the loans and gifts, while every three or four months the chief ministers themselves or else the governmental de- delegations come to the erstwhile of their mother countries or elsewhere fishing for capital. The former colonial powers increases its demands, accumulates concessions, and guarantees and takes fewer and fewer pains to mask the hold it has over the national government. The people stagnate deplorably in unbearable poverty. Slowly they awaken to the unutterable treason of their leaders. This awakening is all the more acute in that the bourgeoisie is incapable of learning its lesson. The distribution of wealth that it affects is not spread out between a great many sectors. It is not ranged among different levels, nor does it set up a hierarchy of halftones. The new caste is an affront all the more disgusting in the immense majority. Nine-tenths of the population continue to die of starvation. The scandalous enrichment, speedy and pitiless, of this caste is accompanied by the decisive awakening on the part of the people and a growing awareness that promises stormy days to come. The bourgeois caste that Ah, that section of the nation which annexes for its own profit all the wealth of a country by a kind of unexpected logic will pass disparaging judgments upon the other small n-words and the other Arabs. That more often than not remin- are that more often than not are reminiscent of the racist doctrines of the former representatives of the colonial power. At one and the same time, the poverty of the people, the immoderate money making of the bourgeoisie caste, and its widespread scorn for the rest of the nation will harden thought and action. Mm-hmm. But such threats will lead to the reaffirmation of authority and the appearance of dictatorship. The leader, who has behind him a lifetime of political action and devoted patriotism, constitutes a scream between the people and the rapacious bourgeoisie since he stands stands surety for the ventures of the caste and closes his eyes to their insolence, their mediocrity, and their fundamental immorality. He acts as the breaking power on the awakening conscience of the people. He comes to the aid of the bourgeois caste and hides forever his maneuvers to the people, thus becoming the most eager worker in the task of mystifying and bewildering the masses. Every time he speaks to the people, he calls to his mind his often heroic life, the struggles he has led in the name of the people, and the victories that in their name he has achieved, thereby imitating clearly to the masses that they ought to go on putting their confidence in him. There are plenty of examples of African patriots who have introduced into the cautious political advance of their elders a decisive style characterized by its nationalist outlook. 
These men came to the backwoods, and they proclaimed to the scandal of the dominating power and the shame of the nationals of the capital that they came from the backwoods and that they spoke in the name of the little n. These men who have sung the praises of their race, who have taken upon themselves the whole burden of the past, complete with cannibalism and degeneracy, find themselves today, alas, at the head of a team of administrators, which turns its back on the jungle and which proclaims that the vocation of its people that the vocation of his people is to obey, to go on obeying, and to be obedient till the end of time. The leader pacifies for his people for years on end after independence has been won. We see him incapable of urging on the people to a concrete task, unable really to open to the future to them or of flinging them into the path of national reconstruction. That is to say, of their own reconstruction. We see him reassessing the history of independence and recalling the sacred unity of the struggle for liberation. The leader, because he refuses to break up the nationalist bourgeoisie, asks of the people to fall back into the past and to become drunk on the remembrance of the epoch which led up to independence. The leader, seen objectively, brings the people to a halt and persists in either expelling them from their history or preventing them from taking root in it. During the struggle for liberation, the leader awakened the people and promised them a forward march, heroic and unmitigated. Today he uses every means to put them to sleep and three or four times a year asks them to remember the colonial period and to look back on the long way they have come since then. Now it must be said that the masses show themselves totally incapable of appreciating the long way they have come. The peasant who goes on scratching out a living from the soil and the unemployed man who never finds employment do not manage in spite of public holidays and flags, new and brightly colored though they may be, to convince themselves that anything has really changed in their lives. The bourgeoisie who are in power vainly increase the number of processions. The masses have no illusions. They are hungry and the police officers, though they are now Africans, do not serve to reassure them particularly. The masses begin to sulk. They turn away from this nation in which they have been given no place and begin to lose interest in it. From time to time, however, the leader makes an effort. He speaks on the radio or makes a tour of the country to pacify the people, to calm them and bemuse them. The leader is all the more necessary in that there is no party. During the period of the struggle for independence, there was one right enough, a party led by the present leader. But since this party has sadly disintegrated, nothing is left but the shell of a party, the name, the emblem, and the motto. The living party, which ought to be possible, the free, ex- which ought to make possible the free exchange of ideas, which has been elaborated according to the real needs of the masses of the people, has been transformed into a trade union of individual interest. Since the proclamation of independence, the party no longer helps the people to set out its demands, to become more aware of its needs, and better able to establish its power. Today, the party's mission is to deliver to the people the instructions which issue from the summit. There no longer exists the fruitful give and take from the bottom to the top and from the top to the bottom, which creates and guarantees democracy in a party. Quite on the contrary, the party has made itself into a screen between the masses and the leaders. There is no longer any party life, for the branches which were set up during the colonial period are today completely demobilized. Yeah, so basically, you know, I mean, the party is a shell of its former self. It's not doing anything for the people. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're still on this bent of um, these nationalist leaders have risen to power and now they're, they're doing what the colonialists want them to do. Yeah, I mean it's it's a this is this is the classic uh, again you get you can get you can see charismatic leader rises up and then goes I mean that that story is kind of mm-hmm. it, that narrative gets used a lot against 
communist leaders that were absolutely mm-hmm. not that, but you definitely, definitely, definitely see it in. I mean, the uh, Pol Pot. I mean, yeah. Pol Pot was was very much in this in this vein. The Khmer Rouge didn't. I mean, that that's he may have started. The Khmer Rouge in general may have started with some with some form of intent, but that that quickly developed. yeah, it was a decolonial nationalist party, and then Pol Pot rose to power, and it was it suddenly this monarchist was leading it, and it was not that at all, and it was explicitly empowered by the U.S. and it was genociding people. And, yeah, but you yeah. know, he was still the charismatic leader until Vietnam had to come in and yeah. knock him off his, his yeah. horse. Until the more charismatic and uh, infinitely sexier leader, uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh, had to come down and slap some ass and fucking kick some, <laughs> take some names. God, I love Ho Chi Minh. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 bad. And again, this is... The more and more we de- we dive into this, and again, God willing, we'll have had the, the bit, this, this mm-hmm. feels less and less targeted towards... Um, Towards socialism, towards yep. towards actually existing socialism, as it were. Yeah. Um, but again, hopefully, hopefully we'll have better examples to to back that up. Sure. Into this episode. Yeah, and we're also getting to a part where now I'm not haven't read ahead at all. So yeah, totally yeah. Now we're all we're all flight and blind, which is what we intended this podcast yeah. to be. Uh, the militant champs on his bit. Now it is the attitude taken up by the certain uh, militants during the struggle for liberation is seen to be justified. For the fact is that in the thick of the fight, more than a few milit. Uh, militants ask the leaders to formulate a dogma to set out their objectives and to draw up a program. Under the pretext of safeguarding national unity, the leaders categorically refuse to attempt such a task. The only worthwhile dogma, it was repeatedly stated, is the union of the nation against colonialism. And on they went, armed with impetuous slogan which stood for principles, while their only ideological activity took the form of a series of variants on the theme of the right of the peoples of, to self-determination. Born on the wind of history, which would inevitably sweep away colonialism. When the when the militias asked whether the wind of history couldn't be a little more clearly analyzed, the leaders gave them instead hope and trust, the necessity of decolonization and its inevitability, and more to that effect. After independence, the party sinks into an extraordinary lethargy. The militants are only called upon when so-called popular manifestations are afoot or international conferences or independent celebrations. The local party leaders are given administrative posts. The party becomes an administration and the militants disappear to the, into the crowd and take the empty title of citizen. Now that they have fulfilled their historical mission of leading the bourgeoisie to power, they are firmly invited to retire so that the bourgeoisie may carry on it, out its own mission in peace and quiet. But we have seen that the national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is incapable of carrying out any mission whatever. After a few years, the breakup of the party becomes obvious, and any observer, even the most superficial, can notice that the party, today the skeleton of its former self, only serves to immobilize the people. The party, which during the battle had drawn to itself the whole nation, is falling to pieces. The intellectuals who on the eve of independence rallied to the party now make it clear by their attitude that they gave their support with no other end in view than to secure their slices of the cake of independence. The party is becoming a means of private advancement. There exists inside the new regime, however, an an inequality in the acquisition of wealth and monopolization. Some have a double source of income and demonstrate that they are specialized in opportunism. Privileges multiply and corruption triumphs. While morality declines, today the vultures are too numerous and too voracious in proportion to the lean spoils of the national wealth. 
The party, a true instrument of power in the hands of the bourgeoisie, reinforces the machine and ensures the people are hemmed in and immobilized. The party helps the government to hold the people down. It becomes more and more clearly anti-democratic and implement of coercion. The party is objectively, sometimes subjectively, the accomplice of the merchant bourgeoisie, in the same way that the national bourgeoisie conjures away its phase phase of construction in order to throw itself into the new enjoyment of its wealth, in parallel fashion, in the institutional sphere, it jumps the paramilitary, per, parliamentary phase, excuse me, and chooses a dictatorship of the national socialist type. Ugh. Mm, yeah. Ah, okay. All right. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Got that down. We know today that this fascism at high interest, which has triumphed for a half century in Latin America, is the dialectic result of states which were semi-colonial during the period of independence. Ha ha! We'd have just waited. We'd have known. Aha. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now things are go. coming a little more to life. I don't think Nathan has to do a whole history of Africa this time. Yay! <laughs> and these poor underdeveloped countries, where the rule is the great, the rule is that the greatest wealth is surrounded by the greatest poverty. The army and the police constitute the pillars of the regime. An army of police force, another rule which must not be forgotten, which are advised by foreign experts. The strength of the police force and the power of the army are proportionate to the stagnation which the rest of the nation has sunk. By dint of yearly loans, concessions are snatched up by foreigners. Scandals are numerous. Ministers grow rich. Their wives doll themselves up. The members of parliament feather their nests, and there is not a soul down to the simple policeman or the customs officer who does not join in the great procession of corruption. The opposition becomes more aggressive, and the people at once batch onto its propaganda. From now on, their hostility to the bourgeoisie is plainly visible. This young bourgeoisie, which appears to be afflicted with precocious senility, takes no heed of the advice showered upon it and reveals itself incapable of understanding that it would be in its interest to draw a veil, if only in the flimsiest kind over its exploitation. It is the most Christian newspaper, the African Weekly, Weekly published in Brazzaville, which addresses the princes of the regime such. The African Weekly says... You who are in good positions and you and your wives today enjoy your many comforts. Perhaps a good education, a fine house, good contacts, and many missions on which you are delegated and which open new horizons to you. But all of your wealth forms a hard shell which prevents you from seeing the poverty that surrounds you. Take care. All right, we're going to pause yeah. for a second um, because I, 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 it's very rare that this happens, and so we're going to take advantage of it while we can. Okay. Guys, the Wall Street Journal article of the week actually came to us while oh, the podcast God was happening, uh, which means it took a minute to parse, but holy shit, gang, do we have a fun one for you today. Okay. Uh, headline, food is the ultimate power. Okay, so let's, okay. okay, so let's think about this for a second. Let's, let's talk about it. Now, it's hyper relevant to what we're doing right here, which is fun. I love it yeah. when it ties in. Parched countries tap the Nile through farms. Oil-rich Gulf states grow crops in Egypt and Sudan to export, leaving locals increasingly dependent on imports. Basically, as a result of... uh, And they try to throw China under the bus here uh, halfway through, which is fun. Um, Basically, as a result of, uh, again, the Nile River... The, the cradle of civilization, the reason that civilization was able to, uh, you know, become a thing, essentially, um, because it's the most fertile delta in the world, yeah. uh, has now become literally so barren and unusable for the local farmers that have subsisted off of it uh, for since the, the dawn of time, because, again, 
Saudi Arabia mainly. Again, they try and throw China in here, which I don't know. Uh, but Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, all these countries that can't uh, can't grow crops are literally exporting, like diverting the Nile to privately owned farms and then growing crops there and exporting them back to uh, the home so that there is not enough food for the people that actually live on the Nile Delta oh, to live Jesus off of. Jesus Christ. Um, it literally has historically carried enough water to turn a entire desert into fertile farmland, and it is literally shrinking every single year because of this, because of how it's being diverted. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's happening. Yeah, that's yeah. a thing. Well, that also ignores, too, the effects of, of you know, AFRICOM, and, and I'm pretty sure the U.S. has been in Sudan for a little while, too. Have they not? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, God, yeah. Come on okay, now. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So, um, not only is the Nile River being exploited like like hell, but everything around it is, is you know, getting bombed shitless in the quote-unquote name of anti-terrorism so that whatever resources are left, the U.S. can sweep up. So, yeah, it's – things are kind of fucked. Yeah, no, it's super – it's super great. Um, yeah. So, again, there you go, gang. Yeah. Uh, welcome to welcome to your 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 charming Wall Street Journal. Hooray! Hooray! Okay. This warning coming from the African Weekly, uh, the Wall Street Journal of Africa, if I've ever heard one, uh, <laughs> an address to the henchmen of Monsieur Yulu has we imagine has we may imagine nothing revolutionary about it. What the African Weekly wants to point out to the starvers of the Congolese people is that God will punish their conduct. It continues. If there is no room in your heart for consideration towards those who are beneath you, there will be no room for you in God's house. Yeah, that's always, always worked on the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely, definitely always been a good, a good tactic. It's clear that the national bourgeoisie hardly worries at all about such an indictment. With its wavelengths turned into Europe, it continues firmly and resolutely to make the most of the situation. The enormous profits which it derives from the exploitation of the people are exported to foreign countries. The young national bourgeoisie is often more suspicious of the regime that it has set up than are the foreign companies. The national bourgeoisie refuses to invest in its own country and behaves toward the state that protects and nurtures it with, it must be remarked, astonishing ingratitude. It acquires foreign securities in the European markets and goes off to spend the weekend in Paris or Hamburg. The behavior of the national bourgeoisie of certain underdeveloped countries is reminiscent of the members of a gang, who after every holdup hide their share in the loot from the other members who are their accomplices and prudently start thinking about their retirement. Such behavior shows that more or less consciously the national bourgeoisie is playing to lose if the game goes on too long. All of capitalism is playing to lose if the game goes on mm. too long. That We've said that from the beginning. Capitalism is an inherently self-destroying system. It, 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 if left to its own devices, it will kill itself. Yes. Uh, they guess that the present situation will not last indefinitely, but they intend to make the most of it. Such exploitation and such contempt for the state, however, inevitably give rise to discontent among the mass of the people. It is in these conditions that the regime becomes harsher. In the absence of a parliament, it is the army that becomes the arbiter. But sooner or later, it will realize its power and will hold over the government's head the threat of a manifesto. And again, we have you know, military coup ad nauseum. Yeah. As we see it, the national bourgeoisie of certain underdeveloped countries has learned nothing from from books. Hey guys, we're here to teach your national bourgeoisie about books. 
If they had looked closer at the Latin American countries, they doubtless would have recognized the dangers which threatened them. We may thus conclude that the bourgeoisie in miniature that thrusts itself into the forefront is condemned to mark time, accomplishing nothing. In underdeveloped countries, the bourgeois phase is impossibly arid. Certainly there is a police dictatorship and a profiteering caste, but the construction of an elaborate bourgeois society seems to be condemned to failure. The ranks of decked-out profiteers whose grasping hands scrape up the banknotes from a poverty-stricken country will sooner or later be man of straw in the hands of the army, cleverly handled by foreign experts. <coughs> Coups. In this way, the former mother country practices indirect government. Ah, hey, guys, now we're getting into how the U.S. does things. Both by the bourgeois that it upholds and also by the national army led by its experts, an army that pins the people down, immobilizing and terrorizing them. Dear God... It, it's just us. It's just us. It's just all the things we do. Yeah. The observations that we have been able to make about the national bourgeoisie bring us to a conclusion which should cause no surprise. In underdeveloped countries, the bourgeoisie should not be allowed to find the conditions necessary for its existence and its growth. In otherwise, the combined effort of the masses led by a party and of intellectuals who are highly conscious and armed with revolutionary principles ought to bar the way to this useless and harmful middle class. And uh, so now that we've got some uh, um, uh, more context on things, um, Fulbert Yulu was a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, he was the first leader of the Republic of the Congo, not the Democratic uh, People's Republic of Congo, but the Republic of Congo. He was a, an ardent anti-communist. And so now we're getting a little bit an idea of these leaders that Fanon is referring to. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense, because I think he did mention Brazzaville a couple times earlier. Which, one time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brazzaville yeah. one time. Yeah, so that's a, that's a direct point at Yulu there. Good, good, good. Then, then yeah. again, Nathan feels better yeah, having not done, these not doing the hundred year research to assure myself yeah, that Fanon no, is not no. taking sideways pokes. No, at, uh, maybe at we Mao can do a little, little uh, uh, rundown on Ful- Fulbert Yulu next time with a little more preparation. Woo! Oh, because if there's one thing I desperately want to do, it's a little rundown on Fulbert Yulu. <laughs> wow, that's a name. It's a name, uh, guys. The theoretical question that is the last fifty years has been raised whenever the history of underdeveloped countries is under discussion. Whether or not the bourgeoisie can f- phase can be discreet, can be skipped mm. ought to be answered in the field of revolutionary action, not by logic. Oh, hell yeah, Fanon. <laughs> Up top. Give me it. <laughs> the bourgeoisie phase, uh, or sorry, the bourgeois phase in underdeveloped countries can only justify itself so far insofar as the national bourgeois Z has sufficient economic and technical strength to build up a bourgeois society, to create the conditions necessary for the development of a large-scale proletariat, to mechanize agriculture, and to finally make impossible the existence of an authentic national culture. A bourgeoisie similar to that which developed in Europe is able to elaborate an ideology and at the same time strengthen its own power. Such a bourgeoisie, dynamic, educated, and secular, has fully succeeded in its undertaking of the accumulation of capital and has given the nation a minimum of prosperity. In underdeveloped countries, we have seen that no true bourgeoisie exists, that there is only sort of a little greedy caste, avid and voracious, with a mind of a huckster, only too glad to accept the dividends that the former colonial power hands out to it. The get-rich-quick middle class has shown itself incapable of great ideas or in inventiveness. It remembers what it has read in European textbooks, and imperceptibly, it becomes not even the replica of Europe, but its caricature. 
the struggle against the bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is far from being a theoretical one. It is not concerned with making out its condemnation as laid down by the judgment of history. The national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries must not be opposed because it threatens to slow down the total, harmonious development of the nation. It must simply be stoutly opposed because literally it is good for nothing. The bourgeoisie expressing its mediocrity and its... uh, in its profits, its achievements, and its thought tries to hide this mediocrity by buildings which have prestige value at the individual level, by chromium plating on big American cars, by holidays on the Riviera, and weekends on neon-lit clubs. Woo! Uh, This bourgeoisie, which turns its back more and more on the people as a whole, does not even succeed in extracting spectacular concessions from the West, such as investments which would be of value for the country's economy or the setting up of certain industries. On the contrary, assembly plants spring up and consecrate the type of neocolonialist industrialization in which the country's economy flounders. Thus, it must not be said that the national bourgeoisie retards the country's evolution, that it makes it lose time, or that it threatens to lead the nation up blind alleys. In fact, the bourgeoisie phase in history of underdeveloped countries is a completely useless phase. When this caste has vanished, devoured by its own contradictions, it will be seen that nothing new has happened since independence was proclaimed, and that everything must be started again from scratch. The changeover will not take place at the level of the structure set up by the bourgeoisie during its reign, since the caste has done nothing more than take over unchanged the legacy of the economy, the thought, and the institutions left by the colonialists. So now we are getting very clearly Fanon's kind of thesis, at least for chapter three. Yeah. And that is uh, a, a, a very, very important thesis, especially in the uh, in the theory of, of communism in the quote-unquote third world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, a, it was a threat leveled at, or it was a critique leveled at the, the Russian Revolution. I know I've leveled it at the Russian Revolution, at least. that, And I think I... Uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Doctrinaire, I guess, Marxist kind mm-hmm. of level at almost every revolution that, hey... Marx said you have to hit a bourgeois revolution before you can hit a socialist revolution. Stop it. You're doing this wrong. You have to go back and at least have your bourgeois revolution or you're going to you're gonna fuck it up. It's going to fail. Yeah. And, and this is kind of Fanon's real world material example of why that's not the case, at least in these underdeveloped nations. Because, yeah. look, we have a quote unquote bourgeois revolution. It does nothing. They're not setting up absolutely the stru- nothing. Yeah. The structures once once other countries have hit that level and they've started this extraction, which again comes from colonialism and imperialism, which again Marx could not have known about and did not know about because it happened a hundred years after he died. Um, there, there is no this bourgeois phase doesn't happen that way. You're not you have a group of people that are not ready for that. You're going to have to skip that. You're going to have there. It's just not going to work. Yeah. You have to you have to do everything you can to avoid hitting that phase because it's going to fail. Now I think a lot of this depends, um, in my opinion, on there already being an established socialist country for you to uh, to either one you're in a you're you're isolated. Yeah, which. I, I mean, DPRK, Vietnam, Cuba, three great examples of isolated um, countries that are able to kind of go into self-sufficiency mode and survive in that manner, mm-hmm. um, kind of turtle up in, in, in the RTS uh, terminology. Um, or you need you need a, a sort of a, a benefactor. You need a USSR. You need a China. You need a someone that is there to defend your your revolution while, because you're going to industrialize 
under under communism, under socialism, you're going to need help doing that. Yeah. Which means there need to be other countries around you or a large, large superpower of some sort counterbalancing to help you because you know for a fact that the colonialists in this instance and capitalists in general are going to do everything they can to try and retard that growth and keep you from going where you want to go. Well, and something he kind of touched on earlier, a lot of this focus is at Africa. Well, Africa, these are economies that are set up where, you know, there's no equipment of capital to do anything but extract resources. Yes. So you extract those resources. Okay, I need to turn this into tools. Well, now you're going to sell it off in trade to get the tools back for your own self-sufficiency. Uh, well, now you're kind of recycling the same thing. So if you're not, you know, redistributing the wealth so that everybody can be a part of it, if you're not working with other socialist countries as that trade out, if you're working with the traditional mother countries, what have you done? And that's yeah. that's really what he's getting into. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's and it's val it's vitally important to analyzing. Yeah, revel analyzing because well, and that's the other thing too. He's saying you're not even really going to industrialize like that unless you're working with another country that's trying to help you industrialize. Exactly. Which again, I think it's very important to look at. This is a great lens to analyze revolutions all across. Basically, yeah. every revolution that was not the USSR or or China to a certain extent. Yeah. I um, mean, even China started as a very. It wasn't an industrialized. It was an absolutely no. a colonized country. Yeah. There has not been a a contrary to what Marx may have thought. There has not been a socialist revolution in a hyper industrialized country. Just no. off the bat, they've almost all been happening in underdeveloped countries in this manner. Mm-hmm. And Fanon is giving us a way to forward what Marx was, was a forward where we were going with this because even Lenin and them I don't think we're talking about this adequately yeah I mean Fanon has given us a completely different aspect that's understood by colonized people yeah mm-hmm. and this is that's that's why this book is again not for us but so fucking for us because it, this is not going to be relevant to how we do our revolution this is not going to be a guidebook mm-hmm. for how revolution looks in America because we're not in a developed country it's helpful for us to understand like that is still a real revolution or, yeah you know that it's super helpful as a tool to uh, maybe say, shut the fuck up and stop judging other countries' revolutions, you fucking prick. How about that? <laughs> How about true. that? Maybe that's a thing you could do for yep. once. Shut the fuck up on Twitter. It is all the easier to neutralize this bourgeoisie class, in, as that we have seen. It is numerically, intellectually, and eco- economically weak. <laughs> in the colonized territories, the bourgeois, the bourgeois caste draws its strength after independence, chiefly from agreements reached with the former colonial power. Mm-hmm. The national bourgeoisie has all the more opportunity to take over from the oppressor since it has been given time for a leisurely tête-à-tête uh, with an ex-colonial power. I guess it's like a tit-for-tat type thing. Uh, yeah, it, it's essentially giving them, whenever like, these revolutions you scratch happen... scratch your back, I'll scratch mine. Yeah, whenever you have a, a decolonial revolution like that and you have that strongman take over, the, the colonial power is going to go, look, all right. We're gonna let you have your little thing. You can be a, you can you can be in charge ostensibly, but if you want to stay in charge, you're gonna give us these things. Yeah. Um. And it takes a while for the people to for for again because this isn't a an actual people's revolution. It's gonna yeah. take a while for that to flow through back channels and people to realize that oh this is just this guy's just a puppet. Yeah. Um. And in the ten to fifteen years it takes to realize five to ten years even it takes to realize you're a puppet. That guy's already got his money and run. Yep. But deep-rooted contradictions undermine the ranks of that bourgeoisie. It is this that gives the observer an impression of instability. There is not as yet a hegemon, hegemoneity. Hom- homo- homogeneity. Homogeneity 
a homogenous thing. Homogeneity. <laughs> there you go. Of caste. Many intellectuals, for example, condemn this regime based on the domination of the few. The under, in underdeveloped countries, there are certain members of the elite, intellectuals, and civil servants who are sincere, who feel the necessity for a planned economy, the outlawing of profiteers, and the strict prohibition of attempts at mystification. In addition, such men fight in a certain measure for the mass participation of the people and the offering of public affairs. One Again, Ordering another, another affairs. fun context clue hint of Fanon not targeting this at socialists mm-hmm. the 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 necessity for a planned economy yeah uh that obvi- that's that's very obviously a, a hallmark of this so again another mm-hmm. just using the book itself as its own way of extrapolating you know you know again trying to I do like that we're I, and because I, I do think it's important that we'll leave it in our our questioning of it in the last episode yeah um but because I think the now more we're, we're seeing, that. but the more you get through the chapter, the more you realize what it is, and I think that's again, that's what it. Well, is. And, the, and and that's the way it had worked out in chapter two, and that's where I was trying to read ahead, and I didn't do a very good job of it because I should have. But honestly, I no, I prefer, uh-huh. and I said this when we did we did the same thing with the nationalist question. I would prefer have the re, have that dialogue live because again, the whole point of this is you're reading a book. If you just listen to this as an audio book, you're going to get that same thing, and then you get just we we can. Ex- you know, give at least some context or some perspective or at least maybe something you hadn't thought yeah. of. And then yeah. we go from there. It's fun. It's exciting. It's the whole reason you're doing this instead of just listening to an audiobook. There you go. In those underdeveloped countries which accede to independence, there are almost always exists a small number of honest intellectuals who have no, no very precise ideas about politics, but who instinctively distrust the race for positions and pensions, which is symptomatic in the early days of independence in colonized countries. The personal situation of these men, breadwinners of large families, or their background, hard struggles, and a strictly moral upbringing, explains their manifest contempt for profiteers and schemers. We must know how to use these men in their decisive battle that we mean to engage upon, which will lead us to a healthier outlook on the nation. Closing the road to the national bourgeoisie is certainly the means whereby vicissitudes of newfound independence may be avoided, and with them the decline of morals, the installing of corruption within the country, economic regression, and the immediate disaster of an anti-democratic regime, depending on force and intimidation, but is also the only means towards progress. What holds up the taking of a decision by the profoundly democratic elements of the young nation and adds to their timidity is the apparent strength of the bourgeoisie. In newly independent, underdeveloped countries, the whole of the ruling class swarms into the towns built by colonialism. The absence of any analysis of the total population induces onlookers to think that there exists a powerful and perfectly organized bourgeoisie. In fact, we know today that in the bourgeoisie in underdeveloped countries is non-existent. What creates a bourgeoisie is not the bourgeois spirit, nor is it the taste or manners, nor even its aspirations. The bourgeoisie is above all the direct product of precise economic conditions. You cannot put on the airs of a capitalist and be a capitalist. Right. You have to fucking be Own a capital, ruling, yeah. You have to be a ruling class that is exploiting a lower class with the end of perpetually increasing your capital. Mm-hmm. That is not something you can just you know, slip into. Yeah. You have it's built up over generations most of the time. Yeah. Now in the colonies, the economic conditions are conditions of a foreign bourgeoisie. Through its agents, it is the bourgeoisie of the mother country that we find present in the colonial towns. The bourgeoisie in the colonies is, before independence, a western bourgeoisie, a true branch of the bourgeoisie of the mother country that derives its legitimacy, its force, and its stability from the bourgeoisie of the homeland. During the period of unrest that precedes independence, certain native elements, intellectuals, and traders who live in the midst of that imported bourgeoisie try to identify themselves 
themselves with it. A permanent wish for identification with the bourgeois, bourgeois representatives of the mother country is to be found among other the native intellectuals and merchants. This native bourgeoisie, which is adapted unreservedly with all the enthusiasm, the ways of thinking characteristic of the mother country, which has become wonderfully detached from its own thought and has based its consciousness upon foundations which are typically foreign, will realize with its mouth watering that it lacks something essential to the bourgeoisie, money. Yeah, that, that, that tends to be something they want. Yeah, yeah. The bourgeoisie of an underdeveloped country is a bourgeoisie in spirit only. It is not its economic strength, nor the dynamism of its leaders, nor the breadth of its ideas that ensures this particular quality as a bourgeoisie. Consequently, it remains at the beginning and for a long time afterward bourgeoisie of the civil service. It is the positions that it holds in the new national administration which will give it strength and serenity. If the government gives it enough time and opportunity, this bourgeoisie will manage to put away enough money to stiffen its dominations. But it will always reveal itself as incapable of giving birth to an authentic bourgeois society with all the economic and industrial consequences which it entails. Where did I just lose where we are? Uh, it's bottom page 179. How did I? From the beginning, the national bourgeoisie directs its efforts towards activities of the intermediary type. The basis of its strength is found in its mm. aptitude for trade and small business enterprises and in securing commissions. It is not its money that works, but its business acumen. It does not go in for investments and it cannot achieve that accumulation of capital as necessary to the birth and blossoming of an authentic bourgeoisie. And at that rate, it would take centuries to set on foot an embryonic industrial revolution. And in any case, it would find the way barred by the relentless opposition of the former mother country, which will have taken all precautions when setting up neocolonialist trade conventions. If the government wants to bring the country out of its stagnation and set it well on the road toward development and progress, it must first and foremost nationalize the middleman's trading sector. The bourgeoisie who wish to see both the triumph of the spirit of money-making and the enjoyment of consumer goods, and at the same time the triumph of their contemptuous attitude toward the masses of people and the scandalous aspect of profiteering, should we rather not call it robbery, in fact <laughs> invest largely in this sector. The intermediary market, which formerly was dominant by the settlers will be invaded by the young national bourgeoisie. In a colonial economy, the intermediary sector is by far the most important. If you want to progress, you must decide in the first few hours to nationalize this sector. But it is clear that such a nationalization ought not to take on a, rigidity, a rigidly state-controlled aspect. It is not a question of placing at the head of these services citizens who, had no political, who have had no political education. Every time such a procedure has been adopted, it has been seen that the government has in fact contributed to the triumph of a dictatorship of civil servants who have been set in the mold of the former mother country and who quickly showed themselves incapable of thinking in terms of the nation as a whole. These civil servants very soon began to sabotage the national economy and to throw its structure out of joint. Under them, corruption, prevarication, Prevarication, yeah, yeah, sure. The diversion of stocks in the black market came to stay. Nationalizing the intermediary sector means organizing wholesale and retail cooperatives on a democratic basis. It also means decentralizing these cooperatives by getting the massive people interested in the ordering of public affairs. You will not be able to do all of this unless you give the people some political education. 
Yes. Previously, it was realized that this key problem should be clarified once and for all. Today, it is true that the principle of the political education of the masses is generally subscribed to in underdeveloped countries, but it does not seem that this primordial task is really taken to heart. When people stress the need to educate the people politically, they decide to point out at the same time that they want to be supported by the people in the action they are taking. A government which declares that it wishes to educate the people politically thus expresses its desire to to govern with the people and for the people. It ought not to speak a language destined to camouflage a bourgeois in administration. In the capitalist countries, the bourgeoisie government has long since left this infantile stage of authority behind. To put it bluntly, they govern with the help of their laws, their economic strength, and their police. Now their power is firmly established. They no longer need to lose time in striking demagogic attitudes. They govern in their own interests, and they have the courage of their own strength. They have created legitimacy and they are strong in their own right. Which is terrifying. Oh, yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> so again, whole, again, giving a very, all, giving a different view of what, what socialism in the, in the aftermath of a revolution would look like. Of yeah. what, especially in a, in a underdeveloped country. Yeah, we're continuing, there's three big themes in this book. You know, one is that colonized revolutions are very different than revolutions within colonial countries. Yes. Uh, two is that uh, colonized people are justified in their violence. Always. And uh, three is <sighs> that politi- political education is vital or Everything is going to crumble and nothing is ever going to decolonize. Yeah. A big running current of educate the people. Educate the people. And then once they are educated, put them in charge. Do not. Yeah. This give is the people. He is power. actively not advocating. He is actively advocating against the sort of bureaucratic state that most people think of when they think of, of I think, socialism or existing communism even. Yeah. Um, the Fanon advocating, you know, advocating for nationalize essentially the middle, the whole trade, the whole trade sector. But do not nationalize it under a a politburo or whatever you want to call it. Whatever, whatever. This seems to be more a a nationalize it and then decentralize the shit out of it so that all of the individual people are able to to all of these educated people are able to contribute to yeah how they need to do it. Yeah, what, but this is essentially like. you know I mean that's his way of making sure that the party is a people's party too. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, With, uh, all good things, no critiques here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the bourgeoisie caste is newly independent in newly independent countries has not yet the cynicism nor the unruffled calm which is founded on the strength of long established bourgeoisies. From this springs the fact that it shows a certain anxiety to hide its real convictions, to sidetrack or in short to set itself up as a popular force. But the inclusion of the masses in politics does not consist in mobilizing three or four times a year ten thousand or a hundred thousand men and women. These mass meetings and spectacular gatherings are akin to the old tactics that date from before independence, whereby you exhibited your forces in order to prove yourself and to others that you had the people behind you. Again, that's the point of strikes and things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Which Uh, didn't, uh, what, Columbia? uh, Oh, Columbia had a... 12-hour general uh, general 12-hour strike. Mm -hmm. Um, And I should say, I mean marches, strikes... The point is to slow down the gears of capital, but mm-hmm. but marches to show that you have the people behind you. Yeah, but yeah, Colombia did recently have a, a pretty major strike. Twelve, which is yeah, great. Which is great again, a yeah. great model. That- yeah, Colombia is a horrible. I mean, a major, major fascist force. Um, yeah, and you got to realize that FARC um, basically de-weaponized after the Fifty Years' War for for peace and yep. got doubled over. They they turned in their weapons and got fucked. Got fucked. I mean, the fascists just kept shooting them. Don't, uh, uh, don't spoiler alert, guys. Don't. 
don't give the uh, liberals or the fascists your guns. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Yeah. They will always have their guns. We yep. need to have our guns, too. Yep. The political education of the masses proposes not to treat the masses as children, but to make adults of them. This brings us to consider the role of the political party in an underdeveloped country. We have seen in the preceding pages that often simple souls, who moreover belong to the newly born bourgeoisie, never stop repeating that in the underdeveloped country, the direction of affairs by strong authority, in other words, a dictatorship, is a necessity. With this in view, the party is given the task of supervising the masses. The party plays understudy the administration and the police and controls the masses, not in order to make sure that they really participate in the business of governing the nation, but in order to remind them constantly that the government expects from them obedience and discipline. That famous dictatorship whose supporters believe that it is called for by the historical process and consider it an indispensable prelude to the dawn of independence. In fact, symbolizes the decision of the bourgeoisie caste to govern the underdeveloped country first with the help of the people, but soon against them. The progressive transformation of the party into an information service is the indication that the government holds itself more and more on the defensive. The incoherence of the masses of people is seen as a blind force that must be continually held in check either by mystification or by the fear inspired by the police force. The party acts as a barometer as an information service. The militant is turned into the informer. He is entrusted with the punitive expeditions against the villages. The embryo opposition parties are liquidated by beatings and stonings. The opposition candidates see their houses set on fire. The police increase their provocations. In these conditions, you may be sure the party is unchallenged, and 99.99% of the votes are cast for the government candidate. We should add in that in Africa, a certain number of governments actually behave in this way. All of the opposition parties, which moreover are usually progressive and would therefore tend to work for the greater influence of the masses in the conduct of public matters and who desire that the proud money-making bourgeoisie should be brought to heel, have been by dint of baton and charges and prison condemned first to silence and then to clandestine existence. Yeah. I mean that's that's pretty yeah. pretty straightforward. Which is again, you're gonna the first thing you're gonna do if you're a fascist or you're a, a, a neoliberal, uh, ostensibly trying to be a fascist, is mm-hmm. you're gonna break all dissent. You're gonna kick everything else out. And this yeah. is this is exactly what you're seeing uh, when they're coming after the MAS in yeah. uh, Bolivia Bolivia. Right Bolivia. Now. Um, and again, this is the same sort of thing. It's it's funny because on the opposite hand, it is almost the exact same thing you will do in a socialist revolution or in any in, in a good one at the very least. Yeah, I mean, um, at some point, and this is where you know you got to think of, of things as you know, don't go neutral on a moving train. Um, there are certain things you do, and the scale of authoritarian versus libertarian is always based on the need of exercising power, right? And so when something very right-wing, very colonial, very racist, uh, very uh, wealth-empowering, very corrupt, is going to be authoritarian, that's terrorizing. I mean, that, that's frightening. That that, that that should terrify the shit out of you, right? Well, yeah, because it's a minority oppressing a majority. Right, so you hard. want them to be libertarian. You're going to want to value, you know, these these freedoms and institutions and whatever slows them down, even though that stuff is all made to, to oppress you. You love their red tape. It's your way of eking through, right? And you hate when they violate their own red tape. Uh, when you're a socialist country, 
you're combating fascism and invasion and counter-revolution, you know. So, I mean, there are times when it's more at peace, when you, you need to be less of a dictatorship of the proletariat, that that'll be more and more libertarian over time. That's the idea of um, the uh, uh, withering away of the state. But at the beginning, at certain times in history, when you're challenged, you're going to have to crack down on fascism. Yeah. You know. And the, and you're going to have to crack down the fact, and you're going to have to, again, you're going to crack. And, you know, we talked about this now, right? If America turns on, snaps her fingers, and, and the country dissolves, and it goes back to indigenous people tomorrow, right? You're not going to just let the white supremacist mobs roam free. No. You're going to have to do something about it. Yeah. And you're going to have to do something about... Uh, most century, I mean, I mean, centrists. I mean, yeah. you, you have a lot of there. There's a lot of cracking down. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. of enforcement that's going to have to happen if this, depending on the level on on what kicks off that it, revolution. Because yeah, what, what, it depends what, on what. Yeah, I mean, what whether it's good are. or bad depends on what you're de- what you're defending, mm-hmm. and how much is cracked down on depends on how much resistance you're meeting. And what you're trying to push forward? Because what is it? What was the number we said that it takes to kick off? There's a three percent. Three percent. So you imagine three percent of a of a, of a country. now that doesn't mean like three percent, and you can have ninety seven percent of the country against you. No, you assume that a vast majority of them are neutral, and you're opposing. But again, right. to, to kick it off, neutral or on your side, but not to a militant level. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but you're going to have to do something about that. You're going to have to. There, there's going to have to be things in place to, to counteract that, and that's. Mm-hmm. I think that's just always something to know because, it, again, if you if you gave me a scenario where a hundred percent of your population agree that socialism is the way forward and you all want to move forward peacefully, fine, cool, show me yeah. that. But I mean, that's that's where you get a, a bloodless revolution. But where has that ever that'd happened? That'd be great. Where has that ever happened? And where do you realistically think that you're going to get to that level yeah. ever? Um, I mean, that's 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 when you're conquering the last little bastion of holdout in some country. That's that's when like 90 percent of the, the world has gone communist and they're everyone else is kind of toppling. It's it's not yeah. going to be how we kick this off. No. And so holding on to that ideal is is just you're just going to make yourself sad. Yeah. Um, and speaking of being sad, that's the end of this oh. week's episode. Uh, At least we made it pretty far. No, we're doing. We are. We are pumping. We are. We are working on on all two cylinders. That this, this, <laughs> this every wheel's moving in the right direction. We didn't. Have, we're we're kicking it and we're going into high gear. But um, we are a two cylindered motorized unicycle. We are. Oh, we are just so so. It's a Rube Goldberg machine of podcasting in here. <laughs> um, just being looked over gently by Papa Stalin, just keeping us keeping us safe. Um, that being said, uh, again, as always, you can get us, if, if there is anything that we've said here that has made you very, very angry and you'd like to respond to us, do it at, uh, Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter or at Mark's, or Mark's Madness at gmail dot, Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, uh, saw our logo and thought, man, that looks bitchin', I wish someone would do that, uh, make me one of those for my project and or just thing I want or I would just like to have that, please. Mm-hmm. Um, hit up, uh, at Commissartist on, uh, Twitter. He's at Commissartist or Commissartist at gmail.com if you would like to commission him to do some sweet work like he did for us, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, that all being said, we should, again, these were both recorded on the 24th. 4th of November. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will be hearing these into mid-December. You're probably coming up on whatever your particular holiday of choice, if any, is. Maybe maybe you want to do some Festivus. Um, Whatever it is, enjoy it if we haven't gotten to you yet. Um, and, uh, and go out and, and give back to your community. Do something, do something to make your fellow man 
material conditions better or make someone feel good because that's that that should be the spirit of what we're doing it's, all this it's, for. It's cold times, you know. It help is people, cold. Yeah. Help people find shelter. Make sure people got jackets. Make sure people's heating shoes for socks. Shoes. Socks. Take socks. Socks. That's are the major. one thing. Socks are are always the biggest need. Uh, when you're giving to, to any kind of, of campaign, you know, the, the, the two things are socks are, are such a big need and kind of undergiven to. And then feminine hygiene are, are less of a big need, but they're a big need and they're undergiven to. Those are, are two good starters. Uh, always food, other clothing, but socks yeah. are big. Yeah. 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 Anything, anything you can do, anything you can mm-hmm. do that that's the whole that's what we're that's mm-hmm. what we're all going for. Mm-hmm. So that being said, again, I am Nathan. I'm David. And-